0: Hello, and welcome to episode 80 of Dason Digest podcast. I'm Jeanette Bouchard, a liaison clinical pharmacist with Dason, and today we have a special episode as I will be joined with an author of the article to be reviewed, Kevin Gary. Kevin Gary is a professor and chair of the Department of Pharmacy Practice and Translational Research at the University of Houston College of Pharmacy in Houston, Texas. Dr. Gary is also an adjunct professor at the University of Texas School of Public Health, and a clinical specialist and researcher at Baylor St. Luke's Medical Center in Houston. He is a member of the IDSA Society of Healthcare Epidemiology of America Practice Guidelines for C. diff infection, and his research involves clinical and translational research in healthcare-associated infections, including candidemia, post-surgical infections, and C. difficile infections. It is great to have you here, Kevin, and I am very excited to talk about this article that has gotten some questions from our sites to us. Thanks,
1: Janet. Uh, you guys do great work. It's uh, great to be here.
0: All right. So today's article is titled Fecal Pharmacokinetics and Gut Microbiome Effects of Oral Amatocycline versus Vancomycin in Healthy Volunteers. The primary author is Jinhee Jo, and the senior author is Kevin. So to set the stage a little bit, C. difficile is a leading cause of healthcare-associated infections in the United States. It's also very costly to our healthcare system. Always on the top of our minds, I feel like, especially in the stewardship realm, as one of our uh, big risk factors for C difficile infections are antibiotics. So currently, our main treatment options for such a common and costly disease are oral vancomycin and oral fidaxomicin, and then if it's more of a severe picture, then adjunctive IV metronidazole can be added onto the vancomycin. Fidaxomicin is currently deemed a, a more preferred option in most guideline updates due to its narrow spectrum, especially when compared to vancomycin and its minimal systemic absorption, but its high cost is what prohibits a lo- um, it from being used a lot of the time. And that brings us to new drug development, looking into different options for C. difficile infections, because when you have just two drugs as your treatment options, especially two oral drugs, it does not leave you much room for a second or third line treatment potential, which as many of us in ID know, We are often resorting to our second, third, fourth line options. In training, I was always taught to have that fourth line option in the back pocket because you never know when you're going to hit that point. So, Kevin, would you be able to talk a little bit about the ideal drug candidate for C. diff infection and what we're looking for?
1: Sure, happy to. And you set the stage very nicely there. So uh, as I think most people know, and you especially because you've been looking at this stuff, we've gone from two from three drugs to two drugs recently in the world of C. and that's metronidazole. And so metronidazole is not, no longer guideline preferred because of decreasing response rates, likely due to resistance of metronidazole in, in, the, in circulating strains. Now, the one place where metronidazole remains in the guidelines is for the most severe form of the disease, fulminant CDI, in which it's recommended to be given IV along with oral vancomycin and really anything else you can do with it. So the worst antibiotic that we have is recommended for the worst form of the disease, primarily because there's no alternatives. So that's where tetracyclines come in and that's, that's IV-omatacycline in particular. And so tetracyclines have always been thought of as low risk for developing CDI when you use them. And that was an original study by Sarah Dernberg and Chip Chambers at UCSF, where they, they just did a formulary change to add doxycycline on. You know, they replaced azetomycin in their community-acquired pneumonia guideline recommendations. And they saw dramatic decreased rates of C. diff when they did that. So our own lab, my lab has looked at omatocycline and aravocycline against clinical strains of C. diff, and it's really potent. Both of them are. And that really brought us to this phase one study that we're talking about today. So it's a low risk in general. Clinical trials with hematocycline had also seen not much C. diff risk. And man, it would be very nice to have another IV antibiotic. And it just so happens to have an oral equivalent too. All the better. And so it was all those parts coming together to say, well, we should really start to explore this as a C. diff antibiotic. And the best way to start is with a phase one healthy volunteer study and that's what we're talking about today.
0: Yeah, I think those are all really great reasons to get us to where omatocycline fits into this article. The azithromycin to doxy switch is definitely interesting. And when I came into practice, that was strongly being pushed. And so it's great to hear a little bit of the history and how tetracyclines have long been known to be a low risk class for this disease. absolutely. So this was a phase one randomized study from 2020 to 2021, that looked at fecal PK characteristics and gut microbiome changes with amoxicillin versus vancomycin. You guys included healthy adults from ages 18 to 40 who were not on antibiotics within 90 days of enrollment. The participants in the study received either a 10-day course of amoxicillin or vancomycin, and the dose for amoxicillin was did have a loading dose, so it was 450 milligrams daily for days one and two, and then 300 milligrams daily for the remaining eight days. And then vancomycin was dosed at the 125 milligrams four times a day for 10 days that we typically see in practice for those less severe cases. Samples were collected at baseline prior to drug and then daily during therapy and at two follow-up visits, so about the two-week mark and then the one-month mark, which is an impressive study protocol, especially when considering getting all of those participants to come back during our COVID era. So props to your study team for getting a lot of these samples here. You guys looked at safety endpoints, so the rate and severity of adverse events between groups, drug concentration in stool, and then microbiome changes. There were eight participants in each arm, so eight in the amatocyclin arm and eight in the vancomycin arm. Most participants were male at about 62% and on the younger side with a mean age of 26 years, a BMI of 23.5 kilograms per meter squared, and most were on an omnivorous diet. Uh, which is an interesting little tidbit to have in your baseline characteristics for a microbiome study. I appreciated that. Both drugs were generally well-tolerated. There was 15 uh, drug-associated adverse events. 11 were in the omata group and then four in the vancomycin group. Most related in the OMADA group were nausea and vomiting. And then for vancomycin, the adverse events that were potentially drug-associated were nausea. I think a lot of these adverse events can be expected the the tetracycline class in general is known for their nausea and vomiting. I know omatocycline in a lot of their approval studies did see that side effect. It was interesting that none of these adverse events required discontinuation of therapy. I wasn't sure if you saw any participants who maybe took less omatocycline or stopped taking omatocycline because of these adverse events or if everyone completed the full 10 full day course.
1: Everybody was able to complete. And most of the nausea was at the loading dose, the first dose, oh, great. Which, which is common.
0: For the fecal analysis, on day one, most participants had omatocycline concentrations in their stool, so 85% of the samples, or six of seven. And by day two, they saw, or you saw, 100% of participants had high concentrations in their stool. And when compared to the vancomycin group, there were only three of the seven participants, so around 40-ish percent. Who had any concentration of vancomycin in their stool on day one, and it wasn't until day three that you guys saw a comparable drug concentration to omatocyc- the amoxicillin participants. And moving on to the gut microbiome analysis, so I'm going to kick it to Kevin to walk through some of these results and translate a little bit about what it means when the microbiome shows different changes between groups and how they compared to each other.
1: So if you look, if you're looking at the paper, so. With microbiome analyses, there's two things you're asking. Is the quantity of the bugs changing? And that's usually done by qPCR. So is it higher or lower numbers, which is what you're looking for? And then are the types of bugs changing? And that's metagenomics. And in this case, we did something called 16S RNA sequencing. And so if you looked at figure two in the paper, that's the qPCR results. And there you're taking sort of representative bugs that are commonly present in the healthy microbiome, and you're asking whether they're going up or down. So in this particular case, the bacteroides represents a very common class called the bacteroidetes, and the clostridium coxioides and clostridium lectum represent two firmicutes, now called bacillota in a new way. And and if you look at anybody's healthy microbiome, it's going to be 90% those types of bugs. So you ideally would like them to be high to begin with and stay high during therapy. So that's what we generally saw with uh, bacteroides stayed high. And that makes sense because omatocycline doesn't have any activity against bacteroides. And so that part of the healthy microbiota stayed high. And the two clostridiums went down, but not to exactly the same extent as what you saw with, with vancomycin. And then Prevotello and Eubacteria and Enterobacteriaceae, these are organisms that are present at low levels, but you will generally see overgrowth of those organisms if you're sort of wiping out everything else in the microbiota. And there they they stayed relatively the same, the quantity as they went through them, with more Enterobacteriaceae being enriched in the vancomycin group. So I thought you understand figure two Now, if you look down to figure three, that's where you get the proportional change. So what's most commonly present at baseline and how does that change during therapy? And so in this case, the green is the firmicubes. That's the clostridia species and others. The blue is the bacteroidetes. And that that purpley thing is another common part of our healthy microbiome, actinobacteria. And so, in these, all these charts, omatocycline is one and vancomycin is the other during therapy. And then you get more and more granulars, you get more and more colors. And that's how you interpret these figures. If you just looked at the top left, you'll see omatocycline has lots of green. That's Firmicutes, a little bit of blue. That's Bacteroidetes, and a little bit of actinobacteria. And that's called your healthy microbiota. And then as you go through, you see the proportion of firmicutes go down and then that bacteroidetes goes up and the actinobacteria stays approximately the same. And then from there, you would look over to vancomycin and you see the firmicutes and the bacteroidetes and the actinobacteria were relatively the same in baseline. And then they change during therapy. So you can see that the bugs are all changing, but they're all changing differently. So now if you walk your hands down to figure four, that figure is trying to demonstrate how common and how much is that change is affecting what's called the alpha diversity of the microbiome. And that's how many species are there and how many different species are there. And then you can see they're both going down. So they both have an effect on the microbiota. And then you go down to the last figure and that's called your beta diversity plot. And that's telling you how distinct are those two populations from each other. In this case, the blue circles are amoxicillin, and the brownie circles are vancomycin. And that top left one represents baseline. And you can see those two circles are almost completely overlapping each other, which means there's no difference. But the baseline samples were almost identical in these two groups, which makes sense because they're all healthy volunteers. But then if you go over to the right, you see that those circles are starting to split apart. And that's demonstrating that you have a very distinct and different microbiome if you are given omatocycline versus vancomycin. And by 10, 10 day 10, you could perfectly split the two populations into groups that got omatocycline versus groups that got vancomycin. And then they do come back together at day 30. So if you put this all together, so they both have an effect on the microbiome. You can make some smaller differences. That some affect charmicutes more than others, and some will kill the bacteroides and some won't. And you put that all together and you notice that there's a very distinct microbiome population that's caused by vancomycin, and another very distinct population that's caused by omatocycline. And since C. diff is the quintessential microbiome disease, you wonder if there's a little bit of a secret sauce here that might actually explain why tetracyclines have a low risk of developing C. diff. And maybe they'll have a low risk of having recurrent C. diff as well when and if we start using them to treat C. diff infection. So that's a very quick crash course in microbiome sciences that gets you from figure two all the way down to figure five in the paper.
0: No, that's great. I think that's definitely what we need to break it down and... See what this paper is actually telling us. It's very interesting. They both disrupt the microbiome, but in different ways. Do we have any information about the best disruptions of microbiome when it comes to C. diff?
1: Well, that's a, that's a great question. It takes a while to actually explain that. Now, these are healthy volunteers that have healthy microbiomes. So you're wondering how that is being destroyed like, to turn it into a healthy microbiome. And this is what this is showing us. But now, wait a second, C. diff, it's a microbiome disease that already has a diseased microbiome. So now the next step will be to take these types of results, but take it into a C. diff population to see now, how does it maybe even replenish some of the healthy microbiome compared to vancomycin, which generally continues to kill whatever's left over this healthy? And could that help explain the low risk of C. diff or a potential anti-recurrence effect. There's more to say, but I can go on and on with this story. It's a, it's a good one.
0: This is very interesting. And for anyone who's heard him talk at ID Week or any other ASHP talk, um, he is full of knowledge about this particular topic. I do want to dig into a few questions that I personally had while going through this article. And the first is that early fecal concentration of amoxicillin. So we saw a delay in fecal concentration with vancomycin in this study, and then you actually referenced another paper of yours that saw a similar outcome when it came to vancomycin fecal concentrations, and that you don't get a whole lot of vancomycin in the stool until about day two to three, which is a little bit different from what we saw in amoxicillin. So what do you think this means, and if it would translate clinically to anything?
1: So that's an excellent question. This was a surprising result to us and it kind of lit a few light bulbs too, which was interesting. So we've seen that before, that vancomycin takes a couple of days to go from your mouth to poop it out the other side, which is not unheard of because think of your corn and your cob that you ate a few days ago. You only see it in the toilet bowl a couple of days later. So that's not surprising for these non-absorbable drugs that only have one way to get there. It's from the mouth uh, down to the gut. So omatocycline is quickly absorbed into the systemic circulation. That's why we like it as an IV antibiotic, obviously. And also why you can consider it for fulminant CDI, because in fulminant, you're worried about an ileus or having trouble getting drugs down to your gut. And so then going systemic to then allow for either co-localization across the gastric epithelium or active secretion into the gut. Like that might actually get it there faster, which is super intriguing because I would prefer to have the antibody there for my active infection as fast as possible. But beyond that, boy, that sounds good to me. No evidence yet to say that is important or not important and will obviously be an active area of investigation for us as well. But it certainly can't hurt to have it there faster
0: would be my best guess. I would think the faster you can get it there, the better, especially in those fulminant cases. So sure. what do you think the next steps for a are? So this is our phase one study. Do you foresee a phase two study coming? Was this promising enough for us to continue looking at it?
1: Absolutely. It's an easy number, two. <laughs> we now have a phase one. The next number up the ladder is two. Whatever your favorite tetracycline company is, tell them they should pursue a phase two in this area because uh, of very exciting phase one data, I'll be doing the exact same thing. And I think it's the next logical step for the development of a new class of antimicrobials that's available IV and PO and something in a space that's really needed for C. diff. I think it's a really, really good idea. Hey, you know what? A nice, uh, an interesting tidbit that not everyone's aware of is nausea is fairly common with C. diff as well. Enough nausea that you really can't tolerate orals very well. You may not be super sick with C. diff, but you certainly have enough of a, a upset tummy that you're not overly excited about popping pills.
0: Yeah, I don't think you're overly excited about swallowing much of anything when you have C. diff. Yeah. For anyone who has known someone with C. diff, they are not super keen on continuing a process of stooling.
1: Yeah, very true. So I think it wouldn't be an overly difficult protocol to say even uh, a pragmatic clinical trial that uh, someone the clinicians would like to use IV metronidazole in this case because of a nausea or whatever reasons just replace that with your IV tetracycline you want to use in this case omatocycline.
0: yeah it would be interesting to see people kind of look at studies with IV and, of metronidazole versus omatocycline. i mean and then do you think so far that this could be practice changing. Now it's phase one, so very little phase one studies are ever practice changing. But where do you foresee this in the future? And do you think any practice should change based off of this study itself?
1: Uh, well, I, th- I certainly see a world where metronidazole should be minimized. And I think it should be minimized, especially in the fulminant CTI patient population that needs the most effective therapy. Which leaves a gaping hole in our need for some sort of IV antibiotic for C diff, and I, I, I the tide of cycling case series are there, and that kind of starts it off. But the best science out there at the moment is this phase one study that says this could be a good idea. I don't think this particular paper is the practice-changing one, but I'm sure the practice-changing one is going to cite this one. <laughs> and off it'll go. So I think it'll be a part of the cog that hopefully does change practice.
0: Definitely. I think for now, I'm excited to see where a lot of this tetracycline and C. diff data continues to chug along. I don't think it's our promised drug as of right now, but hopefully in the future, maybe two ID weeks from now, there might be some information about these use of and in C. diff infections. I do know we have a lot more treatment options coming out. So we have fecal transplant and our drugs that mimic a fecal transplant, and then some interesting mechanism of action with uh, one of your other drugs, which is ibezapolstat. And so going down a more novel mechanism of action there. And it's going to be an interesting, I think, next five years in the C. diff arena.
1: Yeah, absolutely. i know it's interesting, the microbiome replacement therapies are also amazingly hot right now. Now, it's always going to be an infectious disease. So we'll most likely always need an antibiotic to kill the bug to begin with. And then we'll want to choose an antibiotic that doesn't have a high likelihood of recurrence. And then for those that do have recurrence, we now have a lot of neat treatment options, bezotoximab and uh, these microbiome products. So, it is a fabulous time to be interested in CDF pharmacotherapy because there's a lot of neat science and a lot of neat new products to be thinking about.
0: Definitely. Awesome. Well, with that, we'll keep this conversation short, but you can find more information about a lot of uh, Kevin Gary's work online. And then I feel like you're always um, presenting on the next new thing at any of the meetings that a pharmacist would go to, but then also ID week. Uh Matt ID, I'm assuming you also will be there. So we want to thank you so much for coming on this pod and and talking about your article and helping answer some of the questions that our sites might have. It's been great to have you.
1: That's great. I'll put a plug in uh so as you mentioned. So Kelly Ravelis, who's a professor at UT at uh UT Austin and I myself will be at Matt ID, uh, giving a dev talk. Oh, so those, great. Those that are interested.
0: Yes, we have a lot of stewards interested in MAD-ID and taking the MAD-ID stewardship certificate. And so we may have a few people there in our DASO network.
1: Good. Yeah, that certificate's a good one. So that's a fabulous idea.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And thank you to all our listeners. And we will be back with a new podcast episode in the next two weeks.